Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Karen Williams, and you're joining me for part two of our interview. After having been placed with abusive fathers under the court system and the impact that it has is enormous. What kinds of things do you see then with these children as they grow up? What you see is the traumatised personality, you know, somebody who's got what we would call complex um, PTSD. Witnessing domestic violence as well as being directly impacted. And when I say directly impacted, witnessing it when you are a kid, you are directly impacted. But, you know, we we talk about the term witnessing as in not being someone who's physically hurt by somebody. So watching, say, your mother being beaten or watching your mother humiliated and degraded. You know, um, sometimes, for example, a child might witness a mother who's not allowed to sit on the couch, she must sit on the floor, or a mother that's not allowed to eat with the family or eat at all. All of those kind of things that a child is watching is very damaging to them and has a sustained impact on them for the rest of their lives, especially if they don't get treatment, which a lot of a lot of people don't. Yeah. I think a lot of children will lock that away and maybe not be able to express it because they don't have the words or potentially the emotional intelligence, although they can pick up on it and it gets sort of stored away. So when you talk about complex PTSD, complex trauma, what do you mean by that? You know, going back to watching a mother um, being abused and degraded for a child, a child has got to learn to feel safe right? It, that's part of the, the duty of a child. And when they're born, they've got to try and work out in their environment where they fit and a sense of safety comes from within the family. And that's part of the survival instinct. You are born into a family and hopefully, you know, you're in a safe one and you're taken care of and all your needs are met. You get food, shelter, that kind of thing. But you may be in a family that doesn't have those things, be it abuse or be it poverty. And you then need to be, you need to have a different skill set Right. You need to grow up being a bit more vigilant for food, for example, you know, be, be more alert to danger. What that is, being more alert to danger is, a, is an anxiety feeling. If you are born into that danger all the time, and so if you're watching your mother getting hurt, right, remembering she's supposed to protect you, so if she's getting hurt, then your protection is not very stable, is it? So it's like yeah. having, you know, your life vest, but there's holes in it. So you're thinking, oh, this isn't that safe. And if mum is continually getting hurt, then you're not hurt. You're not safe either. And kids can sense that. They can sense a lack of safety. They can sense a lack of certainty. And they grow up with anxiety. They grow up constantly on alert. When's mum going to get hurt next? You know, you've got these kids that will stand in the middle of parents to try and shield the mother from from getting hurt. Plenty of kids who would will describe this, you know, running in between between mum and dad and take and shielding the mum from the assault that causes oh, damage right yeah 
And what about coercive control? If kids have been subjected to coercive control, and so obviously there, it may not be physical, like seeing their mum actually physically hurt, but picking up on that controlling behaviour maybe, and even towards the child, I guess, as well, because it doesn't usually just stop at the woman, does it, even though that's a common common thing that I've heard in courts, that just because it's happened to the mother doesn't mean it's happening to the child. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. There's plenty of evidence just that witnessing abuse is dangerous for kids and that whole dynamic of fear and the walking around on eggshells waiting for daddy to explode, that kind of thing. What's happening is that kid is on hyper alert or both the child and the mother will be on hyper alert. And so the foundation for that child is that I'm unsafe, the world is unsafe and I can't trust people to keep me safe. You know, even my mum, I can't rely on, my dad I can't rely on. So then, you know, they're going to grow up not being able to feel that they can rely on anybody. And that's the thing that, you know, I, I don't think we see enough of because so many people grow up and say, you know, well, that I've got anxiety and, I'll, you know, if I, you ask about it, oh, yeah, yeah, I did have that, you know, that abuse. Yeah, but that was in the past. I'm over that. Um, but help me with my illness that I've got now, you know, my depression that I've got now as if it's not related to what happened to them when they were children. But I do think that we need to start recognising that we've got huge amounts of mental health problems that I believe stem from childhood. Yeah. And I guess if the family court system isn't recognising abuse or, I mean, I know in the UK, legal professionals don't have to have any training in domestic abuse, even judges. I suppose that can perpetrate the abuse and make it worse for kids, causing these problems for them later on in life as well, whilst they're saying contact with the father is the best thing for them at any cost, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, obviously, you know, if it is a healthy, safe environment, that is right. And it would be great to have a child having a, a healthy relationship with both. But if the child isn't safe or there's abuse, that is a very different situation. That's right. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it, that the world will frame the kinds of things that happen within our homes as violence, as if it's this sort of minor thing that doesn't really do any damage, despite all evidence to contrary of that. You know, we've got plenty of evidence of the damage it does and that it causes PTSD. We know all of this, but yet within the court system, they, they seem to just ignore that and have their own set of rules, which is, you know, um, both parents are equally entitled to these children and that they're like products, really, that like splitting the television and the, <laughs> the VCR. I don't know. I think anyone uses VCRs anymore. But, you know, <laughs> splitting things um, down the middle and children yeah. should be split regardless of whether or not the, the children are safe or not. So listening to this episode... So understanding this is really important. I mean, I think getting the clarity that maybe you are in an abusive relationship is important. And you've, you've explained what those symptoms would be. How do you get used to that idea? And what do you often see as clients start to realise, gosh, I am in an abusive relationship or I was? Is there any fallout from that? Because I've seen clients who start to feel very uncomfortable and almost ashamed of it. And actually, it's almost like opening a can of worms at times. Oh, look, absolutely. That sense of shame and, and self-loathing when they find out later the things that they've experienced was abuse and that they didn't see it. And I think that's the fault of us as a society that doesn't 
understand coercive control. There's a hierarchy that the worst kinds of abuse is a physical injury and that the psychological aspects, they're not as meaningful, doesn't matter, you know. And so because we don't recognise it, we don't, it's not illegal, you're allowed to call people names, you're allowed to isolate them from family, you're allowed to do all these things that cause so much damage, so much more damage than a, a push or a shove or a punch even. Um, we, and you're allowed to do that because it's considered lesser. But I think that's because we don't see those scars as being very important, but they are the things that most survivors of abuse will say were the worst aspects. You know, they, they are the worst parts as the psychological abuse. The coercive control is the worst parts that completely cripple a woman if, if you don't believe in yourself and, and your capacity to leave somebody because they make you feel completely dependent on them and that you wouldn't no one else would take you you're such trash that you know you, you are lucky to have a roof over your head and to be looked after by this person who's pulled you out of the gutter you know we hear those terms over and over again they all love this one term you know I got you out of the gutter if you truly believe those things, which by the time you, you go through a relationship like that, it, you truly believe it. And he has told you so many times, you'll never survive without me. And because you haven't worked in years and you don't have the skills anymore. And worse than not having the skills is not having the self-belief. The, these people just don't believe that they could get a job if they wanted to. They don't believe they can survive. They don't believe anybody would believe them and they would believe that everybody um, who they have isolated themselves from as well to a degree they think no one would be my friend even or would want to talk to me because they don't have a social network anymore because he's made sure she doesn't have a social network anymore yeah so yeah. you know all of these this damage that stuff that self-esteem and agency that he has destroyed that continues years afterwards so it's very easy for them to feel humiliated and ashamed to recognize that it was abuse and often they don't recognize that person that's the thing with trauma is that when you are in that state you are a different person in many ways because you are someone who's operating on a very primal level you are operating in a level to just survive so that person is quite different from the person they might have been before who was able to use their whole brain, not just their survival brain, but their whole brain that was creative and energetic and, and um, social, all of that kind of thing. And then they might leave that relationship and develop a bit more confidence. And they look on that person who was frozen and stuck in, in these abusive relationships. They can't even recognize themselves. Like, what was wrong with me? Why did I stay in that relationship? And you know, you hope to get to a point where you can look back and go, what was wrong with me, rather than stay in the, I, I'm completely flawed state. A lot of people do. A lot of people will remain with that belief system that they are flawed, they are worthless and disgusting, and they will continue with that, that for years, if not always, with that belief system. So, I mean, that... Yeah, you know, it's so true. And I, I see that myself. But there are things you can do, aren't there, to help pull yourself out. How does your work help people deal with that trauma and come to terms with it so they can look back and say, you know, I'm different now and I've come through it? So for me, a lot of what I do, and, and I think the most important bit is that I see, I see them. 
you know, I really can see what's happened to them. And I talk them through what's happened to them. And for them, that validation is so important because I haven't had that validation for years often. In the entire time they've been in the relationship, they've been invalidated. Every experience, emotion, they've been told, you're, you know, you're crazy, that, you know, you're making a big deal out of nothing. You're neurotic. You're hysterical. You know, what's wrong with you? You're so oversensitive. And so every time she has a, a normal response to somebody being horrible to her, she starts, she questions herself and goes, what's wrong with me? Why do I get so upset about these things? When you, you talk it back to someone and say, you know what, that's actually not okay. What he did, that's abuse. That behavior was abuse. And they'll still say, oh, no, that wasn't abuse. Because I've seen the same patterns over and over again, I will tell her what she's experienced before she tells me some of the time. I'll give her examples of things he might do. And then when she goes, oh, yeah, well, he did do that. Oh, okay, I suppose. Is that really abuse? You know, often that's very powerful when you can say to somebody, did he stop you from seeing your friends? Oh, no, 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 I didn't. I didn't get stopped from seeing my friends. I chose not to see my friends. I chose not to go out. And then you say, oh, is that because, you know, your friends are too, you know, this or that? And because they'll say things about your friends to make you not trust them. Oh, they're not real friends. They don't really have your back. They want to destroy our relationship. They're jealous of us. There's all these lines that they use that if you, you, you say it back to, to women, then they go, oh, yeah, that's what he did. And you, you can talk them through right from the beginning. Oh, there was lots of love and there was so much, you know, admiration and, you know, that love bumming stage. And then you, you say how the humiliation and the insults come in just very subtly. Even things like, oh, you know, are you wearing that? That's so good that you feel comfortable wearing that, even though your tummy looks so big in it. And, oh, look at those chubby cheeks. And so, like, they can sometimes say insults really couched in kind of a cute way that she doesn't even notice that but because she also has that low self-esteem she might go yeah well it's true I am a bit chubby around the belly and and so she doesn't even say oh that's not okay she thinks he's being nice about it yeah you know yeah, I, so I know my patient her husband said you know I don't have to worry about you going out with your friends because your friend because they're 10 out of 10 and you're and you know at least you're not like that. So I don't have to worry about it. And immediately, wow. you know, she feels like, oh, I won't go out because I don't look as good as them. He succeeds or have a fight just beforehand and make her cry and her face get yeah. all blotchy. And then she won't want to go out and he'll go, oh, come on, you should go. But she doesn't feel like going anymore because he's had a fight with her just beforehand. So there's little ways that you can separate somebody from her friends and family in a way that doesn't quite look like it but yeah, so working absolutely. through the decisions are made how did she make that decision to cut off her mum and dad how did she make those decisions and you when you when you work through it it's actually his ideas but he's framed them as her ideas and that's so, part of what what I do unpack that with them I mean that's fascinating I think shining a light on it and allows your clients to then have those light bulb moments like all them where they start to see it from a slightly different perspective and see the truth and also the gravity behind what's happened because it is a slow drip isn't it over a period of time so when they get that awareness and that clarity 
does that enable them then to start to get their power back and their self-confidence? Is that then the next stage sort of work on their confidence because now they understand it consciously rather than being caught up in it? Yeah, look, I mean, I'll give you an example that I'd had very recently where one of my patients was saying how she's very jumpy when she goes and, you know, into the kitchen or if she goes into another room, she gets very jumpy. And if, if there's a family member in there, she'll immediately jump. And I said, oh, so, you know, what, what do you think is the reason you, you are so jumpy? What do you think is the cause? Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control, and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life, and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. What do you think is the reason you are so jumpy? What do you think is the cause? And and she was so apologetic. She said, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, like, I'm really sorry. I feel like I blame everything on my ex, you know, and, and that I've got no other excuses for it. But here we are. She's really sorry that she's about to explain to me this. She says, but he used to hide and jump out at me um, and frighten me. And he would be behind doors all the time and just jump out. And he would do this to me so often that, and, and it would say, it's a joke. And I said, well, how often are we talking? How often would this actually happen? And she's like, oh, maybe about 50 times a day. And oh, was, my goodness. What? Wow. 50 times a day he would hide around the place and jump out at her to frighten her until she would wet herself sometimes. And he would do this to her every single day. He would hide little firecrackers between the porcelain and, and the, of the toilet seat and the toilet seat. So when she sat on it, it would make a loud noise and frighten her. And he would do things like this every day, deliberately to make her anxious around the house all the time, right? So there she's apologising to me, thinking she's making a big deal about about that and, and seeing how that's abuse. And, and none of that's illegal, right? You can't do anything about that behaviour because you go to the court and they're going to say that's a joke and he's going to say I was joking. And all of his friends will say, yeah, he's a jokester. He's always joking. And, yeah, he does this sort of stuff to us too. It's just he's just playing because he did. He would do that to his friends, not as often as he did to her, but he would do it to them too. So everybody knew he was a prankster. And that was part of the whole charm, right? He, to them, he's a prankster. To her, he is doing this 
to destroy her, deliberately yeah. to destroy her. Yeah. And, you know, so there she is telling me she's a, she's sorry that she's using and she's telling me that he's a joker and that was just his way of joking. Even then, you know, not quite recognising that, that what was actually abuse. But, you know, we workshopped that and we talked about it and I said, how would you feel if, you know, it was your child and there was a kid or like, bigger boys at school were jumping out at your kid and freaking your kid out every single day, multiple times a day, not once, not twice, but 50 times a day in the school corridor. How would you feel? And she said, I'd want to go kill that kid, right? Like a normal parent, that's what you're going to do. But yet for her, she seemed to think it was something she should put up with. And once we work through that, there's that little bit of fire, little bit of anger, little bit of fight back, and that's what you need to, to get better. You need to believe you deserve more. Whereas before that, she thought, I'm I'm shameful, I'm embarrassing, that I'm so jumpy, like what's wrong with me that I can't. She was ashamed of being such a scaredy cat. She she views herself as a scaredy cat. Because he probably said that to her as well all the time. You're such a scaredy cat. Right. That's And then his way of, of isolating her from her mother and father was to say, your parents mollycoddled you. They're pathetic. What kind of parents have made you such a scaredy person that you can't take a joke? All our friends take a joke, but you can't. So, again, you know, she's then thinking, oh, why did my parents do this? Why didn't they toughen me up? She didn't even want to tell them what was happening because she thought that they would be soft and that they would say, you know, that's not okay, which they would say. But then she was being told that if they did say that, that was because they're mollycoddlers. So he got yeah. her to believe that their advice would be wrong anyway. What a, a horrific story. And you can see from an outsider, can't you, what's been going on. But, I mean, when you're in it and, like, that poor lady, I mean, it's it really is horrific. And, you know, it always blows my mind how cruel some people can be because if you if you don't really understand the concept of, the people can be that cruel you might minimize it or normalize it and I think that's quite common as well and and often you don't want to talk to say your parents about it anyway because it's so embarrassing to even vocalize what's happening mm. that you don't really want to shine a light on it all for fear of making it appear more real as well so right. often you know victims of abuse won't speak out just out of sheer embarrassment yeah that's right and then you know when he's leading the way that you look and what they'll do is they'll deliberately pick your hang-up. So if you have a hang-up about, say, your nose, for example, they will deliberately pick on your nose but, and, and say, oh, yeah, you know, it is, oh, look at your nose and give it a little squeeze or something like that when they're in a better mood or they might make fun of it in an even more cruel way. But if they pick on the, on the bits of you that you believe already to be true, then it doesn't look like it looks like they're telling the truth and they're pointing yeah. out a reality. And so that's the way they get around sort of getting you to, to feel degraded and humiliated, stop believing in yourself. And I think people don't recognise that self-confidence and, and, and self-esteem is one of the most important things we have to function, to yeah. do anything, and to make any decision, to go and make friends, to go, and make, go get a job, to even go to the shops and purchase something. You have to believe you deserve those things. And if you destroy a, a person's ability to think that they deserve anything then all of those things become extra hard even asking you know a person at the shops for help 
you know, I want the size seven shoes, can you get it? You have to think that that person wants to serve you, that you're worthy of being served, that that person's not going to laugh at you because why does she want to get new shoes? She looks terrible anyway. You know, I mean, we're talking about the people who have absolutely no sense of self after coming out of a relationship like that. Yeah, and it, and it can be a, a journey, can't it? It's a, first you start with the realisation, then you move on to sort of understanding and seeing that it's not your fault, it's not your fault. And then that acceptance, I suppose, and then building that self-resilience back up and that self-confidence and having that support team around you with people like you, Karen, and the team to help explain and, and nurture as, as you go. So do you work with clients around the world? Do, do, you, do you offer a service that people can, can access you remotely? I mean, not really. I haven't, mostly most of my clients are in Australia because there's just so many people everywhere. You know, it's not like I um, have felt that I've, I've needed to, to go out looking for extra work or anything like that because un unfortunately I have too many people. I wish that I, I had less because it means to me that how, you know, desperate this situation really is. Yeah, that, that's very true. You know, that it's, it's awful, awful. Their lists are huge. You know, there is no end need for people to support women in these situations. We have far too many women in this situation. Yeah. So if people wanted to find out more about you or the work that you do, how can they find you? I'm on Twitter and I'm often and the reason I'm on Twitter is to highlight some of these things because I do think that there is a worldwide lack of knowledge about this stuff and I think that it's really important that women start standing up and um, you know as a society we have to see things change and it's never going to happen if we don't start voting in people into a government that are going to make those changes and we are quite awful if we're united but because abuse is done in such a way that people are isolated right women don't stand up and fight for things to be different often and so it's you know small little groups here and there but there does need to be unity if we're going to see change like long long lasting change so that this doesn't continue to be a generation after generation of abuse like we are seeing my advocacy and speaking out um you know and, and articles I, I feel like that's about validating the experiences of women so that they realize you know what that happened to me and that's not okay and I'm going to utilize what I can to fight back because it's it's going to require us all fighting back Absolutely. I've also um, created a group called doctors against violence towards women so I founded this group a few years ago because in the health system we see so much domestic violence but women are actually quite invisible in, in that sense. We will, we will look at the woman for what she's got in front of us, which might be an injury and say, you know, suture that up and see you later, off you go, or you've got depression or anxiety and here's your medication, here's an antidepressant, that'll solve it all, you know, and, and send people off. That's the traditional model that we have. And so we don't see the domestic violence that's behind that woman that's brought her to us. So um, you know, I, I, I wanted this group of doctors to, to get together and it was just a few of us to start highlighting how we can help by making sure we're always asking about it and looking for the right things and documenting things properly. So not documenting that she's got mental illness, but 
but making sure that we've checked first to see that there's nothing else going on that could be the real reason to, as to why they're there. Because if they've got these histories of mental illness scattered through their notes, then that's often used against women in the family law court as well and in other ways. So that group started off as just a, you know, a small little group of five of us. And now there's uh, 700 doctors in that group and that we've got, you know, thousands of followers online. So that's an, another way um, we're always wanting to hear patient stories so that they can tell us what their experience was like going through the health system and where we've missed seeing them so that we can try and make sure that we don't make those same mistakes over and over again. For example, so in our important. emergency department, it really is. Okay, so I was just about to say in the emergency departments in in Australia, our social workers are there nine to five, but, you know, that's so it's fine if you get if you go to emergency only between those hours. But if you go emergency with an injury caused by domestic violence because it's happened, you know, when he's come back from work, it's been the, or the weekend, it's late at night, which is more commonly the time you can have an assault, um, then you just go into emergency, they suture you up and see you later at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're sent back home. There's no yeah. way for women to be looked after. That's the time we should have you know, support services available, right? Yeah, right then, you've got that person there and you can talk to them about it and, and help put in some supports, but we don't have anything after hours. So even just highlighting that and recognising what's happening and how we are keeping women in those relationships because we don't support them to get out when we can because it mean, wouldn't think- be that hard. Keep them overnight, keep them one night, keep them two nights and say for observation, and then you can try and make sure that there's some supports for that person but we don't have because the yeah. government doesn't value the life of women that much if they did they would say look don't send women home at that time of night when there's a suspicious injury let them stay the night let them see a social worker um, or pay for a social worker to be on call they're basic things that you we actually could do if we had a proactive government right yeah, as long as the social worker is trained, because I think there's a big issue with experts not being trained or so-called experts, you know, not being trained, even though they're supposed to be. I, don't, I know that's a big one. I 100% agree with you on that. No, you wouldn't find any argument from me on that. <laughs> so your Doctors mm. Against Violence Towards Women group, how can people find that on Twitter? Is there is there a handle for that or what's your personal handle so people can find you? It's very imaginative, <laughs> Dr. Williams, that's it, Dr. Williams. Just Dr. Um, Williams, people will be able to find you, Dr. Yes, Williams. I don't quite know how I managed to get that. <laughs> oh, lucky. Well, and on that's very simple. Yeah, okay, and, on, and on Facebook it is Doctors Against Violence Towards Women. Okay, fabulous. So thank you so much. I think, you know, you've shared so much that's going to really help so many people listening and given a lot of clarity about what abuse is and how to spot the signs. Um, my last question is one that I ask all my guests um, because my podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. I think it's important to know what happiness is for you so that you get to recognise it along the journey. So what is happiness for you, Dr Karen? I'm really happy when my patients don't need me anymore when they are able to live their life happy and able to to live the life that they deserve and and not feel that need to have someone 
or prescribe them any pills or support them through things, but to be able to fly again, that gives me true happiness. I love that, be able to fly again. Well, we wish that to everyone coming out of a toxic relationship for sure. So thank you, Dr. Karen Williams, for being here today. You are an absolute shining light on in your field and what you do. I think you do incredible work. I will be watching and cheering you on all the way. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head on over to Twitter to at Dr. Williams to find out more about Karen and her work. And I look forward to you joining me on our next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to Sarah's virtual Heartbreak to Happiness retreat. This is a transformative combination of live webinars with Sarah herself, coupled with her empowering online video program designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com where you can also get a copy of Sarah's gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.